Matthew 8:14 through 22. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, she brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This, is, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, "'Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go.' And Jesus said to him, "'Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, "'but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head.' Another of the disciples said to him, "'Lord, let me first go and bury my father.' And Jesus said to him, "'Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead.'" This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peyton. I asked Peyton to read those other few verses in there um, because I wanted you to see the context of this passage, and we're going to look at it in just a minute, the context. But I have a, have a book that I would like to give out. The book is, it came off my shelf, and so if you're like, it's a little wrinkled, it's seen some love. Um, but it's a Timothy Keller book. It's called Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, The Only Hope That Matters. I see that hand back there. Okay, this is a hardback, so we're just gonna like pass it backwards a few. Oh, sorry, Rose. Sorry, that's kind of our MO. We throw things at people here. Um, I'm Thomas Nelson. I'm uh, injuring people with books. Great to see you tonight. Hey, look, here's the deal. We're back in the book of Matthew. We took a little break to do a series on discovering the will of God and how to know the will of God. And we're gonna continue to do those little mini breakaway series as we go through the book of Matthew. Uh, and I intentionally, if you were here uh, a month and maybe five, six weeks ago when we were the last place we were in in Matthew, we were in chapter four. And so you will have noticed we skipped the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry, my plan is to come back to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's chapters five, six, and seven. But I wanted to skip ahead and continue in to the actual ministry of Jesus. My hope is this, look, we study, and I say this all the time, but we study so many other books in the Bible besides the Gospels. And we talk a lot about Jesus. But it's amazing how often, and yes, I know, I know if you're like, if you're the theologian out there and you're like, but Thomas, he is the word uh, made flesh. And so every word embodies Christ. I get that. I totally get that. But I just think it's interesting how often Christians skip over looking at Jesus, the man himself in the gospels. And so I want us to do that. I want us to just, if, we, if you leave here tonight and you're like, ah, I forget, it was Matthew something, eight, I can't remember. What I hope you don't forget is I feel like I got to know Jesus better, like who he really is, the real Jesus. And so you're gonna see a side of him tonight that maybe you're not familiar with in this passage. And the idea tonight is the cost. It's the cost of following Jesus. And to follow Jesus, it costs everything. It costs everything to follow Jesus, but it also costs everything to not follow Jesus. And so we want, we want to look and we want to see what, what does he require? And so as we start tonight, I want to ask a, a pretty simple question. There's this idea called lordship salvation, and it's a, it's, it's a, a theological churchy term, lordship salvation. And it basically is this idea of do you have to be submitted to Jesus and following him 
to really be identified as a Christian and a child of God, or, hear me on this, to be a Christian, identified as a, identified as a Christian, a child of God, like in the record books in heaven, can you simply say, I believe that I am sinful, I believe that I am separated from God, and I believe that Jesus took care of all that on the cross? And it doesn't matter near as much if my life lines up in an obedient pattern of trying to follow and know Jesus, but my confession and my profession, and I mean it, is that I'm simple, separated from God. Jesus is the answer to the punishment that God would give my sins. Jesus received that on the cross, and so I'm good. So lordship salvation would teach that it takes one more step to truly show that you identify as a Christian and are a child of God. And it's not based on your works and your behavior, but it's that your works and your behavior show that you have been changed by Jesus, and so therefore he is your Lord. And I think what we're gonna see tonight is it's not just enough to profess a relationship with Jesus, and it's not just enough to confess the true, confessionally true things of Christ. A real Christian, one who identifies with Christ and is a child of God, is also one who has counted the cost and is following Jesus by the power of the Spirit and the grace of God at work in that person. And so uh, I'll read the passage one more time, and then I want to look at a couple of things. Now, when Jesus, I'm in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 8. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe, there's two characters besides Jesus in this story, two main characters. The first one is this scribe, verse 19. And the scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, listen to this, this is Jesus And remember, the goal tonight, above all else, is to know Jesus more. This is what Jesus said to him. Foxes have holes, and birds of the air, they have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another disciple said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, I don't know what your thoughts are when you think of like, let me, let me get a personality in mind of Jesus, but you need to include these verses to really get a full personality of who Jesus is. So um, there, there was a quote from one commentary that I was reading, and the quote says, if we could reject all lesser views of what it means to be a Christian, and non-lordship salvation would be a lesser view, and produce a generation of those who are genuinely committed to Christ and obeying him by the power of God's spirit, that generation of believers could radically change the world. I think that about you, and I've thought that more about you in 2023 than I have in in late 2020 when I came, or 2021, or 2022. I've thought more about this idea about you this year than I have the whole time I've been here, and really it's just been the last couple of months, that there are enough of you and enough influence in you 
that if you all with reckless abandon followed Christ by the power of the Spirit and the grace of Jesus himself, I truly believe our city could be affected for the gospel. And so as we look at this passage that definitely shows an idea of lordship, I want us to ask the question here, does Jesus discourage where the church encourages? Do you see this? Jesus talked two people out of following him. The church is so funny. The church, the church, I think, has done a big disservice. We soft sell the gospel all the time, and we celebrate any warm body that shows up, and at the end of the day, attendance is often the goal. And that is an unfortunate mishandling of Jesus himself. Jesus never soft sells what it means to follow him. Jesus came for something other than attendance. And if you or I think that our attendance is some sort of currency with God, we need to think again. So the two main characters, one is the scribe, and he's the one who rushes into a decision. The other one is the disciple, and he's the one who delays a decision. And somewhere in the middle are you and I. And so we need to understand the context of this passage. So if you've got a, a paper Bible, I'm a big fan of the paper Bible. I do a lot of studying on the iPad. Love the iPad. We're iPad free tonight. We are untethered, y'all. Um, no drawing, circlings, anything. Uh, but if you have a paper Bible, you'll be able to see, and even if you have a digital copy, you'll be able to see different headings in this chapter. So take a look at your headings in this chapter. It starts off that Jesus cleanses a leper, and then there's the faith of a centurion where Jesus heals a centurion servant. And then Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, which, uh, which Peyton just read to us. And then it says after that, that many were brought to him and he healed them and he cast out demons. And then the story we just read. And then starting in verse 23, Jesus calms the storm. And then after he calms the storm, he has his famous like no pork episode where he casts demons out of a guy and they go into the pigs and the pigs run off the cliff. And, uh, and he, anyway, that's supposed to be funny. Um, but like he does, he, he has that. And that's how the chapter ends. Chapter nine, there's more, there's more healing. Um, and, uh, and so what, why in the world with all of these healings, authority over demons, authority over infirmities, and authority over the weather, would there be this one little story that Matthew would put in about these two guys, the scribe who's like, I'll follow you, and Jesus said, following me leads to no comfort. Or the, the disciple who's like, let me follow you in a little bit. Why would he put that in the middle of all this authority? I think the issue here is that Jesus is showing he is also to have authority over humans, over our time, over our jobs, over our money. He's a, he, is, he is asking both of these guys, will you let me have authority over you? And he's showing I've got authority over all the sickness. I've got authority over all the demons. I've got authority over the weather. I've got authority over all these things. Will you let me have authority over you? Because to really be my disciple, I get authority over you. He's not just handing out gifts and commanding 
He's commanding all things he comes in contact with to be transformed into how they were meant to be in the kingdom of heaven. He's bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. And so for both of these, these fellows, the scribe and the disciple, their lives are not aligned with the kingdom of heaven. And just like when Jesus encounters a demon-possessed person and casts the demon out, he is making their life more aligned with the way it's supposed to be in heaven. By getting this scribe to understand what it means to follow Jesus, by getting this disciple an understanding of the urgency to follow Jesus, he is trying to gently exert authority over them that their lives would look like how they were supposed to look like. Uh, And so often, though, we have this, this cheap grace that we substitute for Christianity and, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous, um, the famous church, the churchman in, uh, in Germany who died for his faith because he wouldn't align himself with Hitler, um, he, he had something to say because I think this scribe also has cheap grace. And Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution, the release of guilt and punishment without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But Bonhoeffer also talked about costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, with, to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for those for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. This scribe who said, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. See, he thought it would be good for him and Jesus if they went together, because he's a scribe, and scribes wrote down the whole Bible They were experts in the Mosaic law. They were experts in the nuances of the Hebrew Bible. And so he thought it would be advantageous for Jesus if Jesus had a scribe. And he thought it might be advantageous, I imagine, for himself because he could write the book about Jesus. And so what a great partnership. And Jesus said, my friend, you thinking you bring me anything is your first mistake. You bring me nothing. You come to me looking for comfort. I'm a guy who doesn't have a pillow that's permanently his. Now, I want to give you a word of encouragement. I think for many people, whether you're recently just coming to church, tonight's your first night in a long time or ever, or whether you've grown up in the church, I really believe that for many of you, especially you church camp kids, the ones who went, especially if you went to the big church camps, and I was a part of some of those. But look, I think, I think lordship salvation is a new idea for you. 
To identify with Jesus is synonymous with giving him authority over your life. He, just like he has authority over sickness and demons, but more importantly, Jesus knows this is a new idea, and I promise you, if it's new to start thinking, is my life submitted to him, or do I think I'm bringing something to him? It's good of me to be a part of him and his church If it's new to start thinking, he's supposed to have authority over my whole life. The good news is in Isaiah 42.3, it says that he does not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. And if if he is piercing your heart tonight and over the next few days and weeks about this idea of submitting every part of your life under his authority, he will walk with you through that process. He will not just break you. And I think I want to give a word of apology too because I believe the church has allowed many who have shown some hype and some passion who said, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. I think we've shown you a disservice because I believe there are many quote-unquote Christians who aren't really Christians, but they think they are because somebody said, oh, you, you like church? You cried in that song? You responded to a message? Of course you're a Christian. But the lining up of your life to the submission of Jesus is just like the two people in this story. They both knew Jesus. They both knew some things about him. But neither was aligned with him. And the reason I want to apologize is because I think we've left a lot of people in the church in confusion on where they really stand with God, and Jesus never left people in confusion. Here's another thing about the person of Jesus. Do you see this? He's not just being mean. He's making it clear, hey, scribe, you want to follow me? You need to know following me won't lead to your comfort. And so often somebody says, I want to follow Jesus, and we celebrate that, and we rejoice in that, and we should. But we don't tell them the full story. The full story is, are you sure you want to follow Jesus? Because you don't get to take anything with you. And you need to think about that. And this guy didn't. So as best we can tell, he walked away sad. If Dr. Seuss were writing this sermon, he might say, So can I have a house or a spouse, go on vacation with a mouse and follow Jesus? Like he might say something along those lines. And I mean, you probably can have a house and follow Jesus. Like he didn't, but you probably can. There's a few of you that have houses. I'm not telling you to go sell them tonight. What I'm saying is though, you're not promised a life of comfort in following Jesus. And that we can take to heart from this passage. None of us are are promised a life of comfort I think maybe every morning when I wake up, I, um, I make coffee, and, uh, and I love coffee, and then I make it again, and then I make it again, and I just like, I love coffee. And then every day when I get to the office, I drink coffee again, and some of you are like, some of you health nuts out there are like, he's going to die. So are you, um, like we all are. Uh, and so, like, I'm going to die happy, though, with my coffee. Um, you'll die, you'll die sad because you don't have caffeine. Um, and so, anyway, but I, uh, every morning, I get one scoop of collagen, and I put it in my coffee, and it's, been, it's done wonders for like my joints, my nails, 
this hair. Um, like, don't laugh at that. Um, yeah. Okay, hadn't done so much for the hair. But anyway, I, uh, I love my collagen, and, and it's a part of my morning routine. But I think that's kind of what the church has done so often in trying to help you incorporate Jesus into your life. We've turned him into a scoop of collagen that's good for you, and it's a good part of your day. But you see, Jesus is the morning routine. He's the morning and the mid-morning and the noon and the afternoon. He's not just this addition that I scoop up and add to my life. He is my life. This story happens in Capernaum which is Peter's hometown. Another reason I had Peyton read that passage because he's staying at Peter's house and the mother-in-law lives with Peter. The mother-in-law is sick and she gets healed and she wakes up and she starts making everybody food. What a wonderful lady. Sounds like my mother-in-law, a wonderful lady. And uh, she's not even here. She didn't even know I said that. Um, If you could tell her. Uh, No, I have a great mother-in-law. She would do the same thing. Um, But here's what happens a couple of chapters later, and um, we don't have to put it up on the screen because in a few weeks we're gonna get to this passage. But a couple of chapters later in Matthew 11, Jesus does so many miracles in Capernaum. And so many people come to Jesus as though he's a scoop of collagen for their life instead of their life, that he pronounces a curse on that town. And he says, Capernaum, it would be better for for Sodom and Gomorrah to still be around and me pass judgment on them versus the judgment you will receive. In fact, if I had done the miracles in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. But you, you people basically just want me added to your day. And did you know to this day, no town has ever been, Capernaum has never been rebuilt. A few hundred years after Jesus, it was destroyed and it has always been a ghost town. His curse stuck. Um, I think, I'll give you one more quick example. I um, I have a new hobby. I am a part-time arborist in my own yard. I have a picture. That's me. Um, I have been learning to climb trees and cut them. It's my Saturday gig. And, uh, and so I've been learning to do this. Um, I really have been learning to do this. It really is me. Um, and so I, you can take that picture off. Now that's embarrassing. Um, but yeah, it is, it is me. And I put that, I put that up there hesitantly, um, because I don't want you to try this at home, but like I have been learning to cut trees because we're doing this renovation at the house. And I thought, well, if I can cut a bunch of the trees, I can save a bunch of money and I can, um, save a bunch of money doing it. If I don't kill myself or cut things off. And so, so far so good. But a lot of times, um, a few people have found out that I'm doing this and, uh, and, and I've been helping a buddy at his house and a buddy's helped me at my house. There's a few of us that are like learning how to climb and cut and those kinds of things. But when people come up to me and a few people have, and they're like, Hey, I'd like to help out. I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, my grandpa had a farm and we used to like walk around it. I'm like, okay. It's like, well, you know, chainsaws are dangerous. And they're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, climbing trees are dangerous. And they're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, climbing trees with chainsaws is like more, more dangerous. And they're like, yeah. And if they're still listening at that point, I'm like, 
It's expensive too. Like the saws are expensive and the protective equipment's expensive and the ropes. And, and if their eyes haven't glazed over yet and they haven't, they haven't walked away, they'll usually say like, why are you doing it? And I'm like, well, it's, I'm saving some money and it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of fun. I'm kind of putting some rock climbing skills together with like some work that I've learned to do with the chainsaw. It's just been pretty amazing. Um, and, and then I'll say, and it's also like very rad. Like to be up in a tree with a chainsaw and like big pieces of tree are falling off and you're still okay. It's like, this is a wild ride. Like it is, it is like a rush. Um, and so usually they're like, cool. And they'll like walk off and I don't know what they're thinking, which is probably good. Um, and they'll like walk off and they're like, great. But every once in a while, and it's happened with a couple of folks, they're like, can you teach me? And I'm like, oh, this one's crazy. Yeah, yeah, I'll teach you. And so like this Saturday, I'm teaching a guy how to use the spurs and climb up the tree and all this stuff at his house. It's going to be great. But what, why, why do I tell you that? I tell you that because like you might say, oh, I want to do that. Like that looks fun. And, and then if you'll think about it, if I do my job and I warn you, it's, it is fun, but like you know you could die doing this. Most people are like, I'm not interested. But the few and the brave and the slightly crazy are like, let's figure this out. I think that's how we ought to tell people to follow Jesus. I think that's how we ought to package the gospel. Not just, are you, do you have an infirmity and need healing? I think we need to finish the story and we need to say, and by the way, this is like very dangerous for you. This, you could die doing this. This is going to cost you everything. There are times that it's super scary to follow Jesus. I think we should finish the story because he does. He always finishes the story. But we should definitely end it with, and by the way, it's very rad. And I think the few and the brave would say, can you teach me? And that's why Jesus says, come and follow me. Then that other guy, the disciple comes up to him and he says, he says, Lord, I want to follow you, but first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says, maybe the meanest thing that's recorded in the scriptures that he says the guy's talking about his dad and burying his dad. And Jesus says, follow me. Leave the dead to bury the dead. Now, I think there's three possible things that's happening in, in this story, in this part. I think three, three possible things. I think either his dad had just died. I think there was a second burial process that was a Jewish tradition, or he wanted to stay with his family until his dad had passed away. And so I don't, the reason I don't think the first one is possible, and a lot of commentators don't either, I don't think that his dad had just died. I don't think he's like in mourning sackcloth and he's walking up and he's like, I gotta go to the funeral, I'll follow you in just a minute. And Jesus is like, no funerals for you. 
You follow me. I don't think that's happened because in Judaism, when you die, you have to be buried the same day. Think about Jesus on the cross. When he died, they had to hurry to get him off the cross and get him in the tomb before sunset. So I don't think his dad has just died. And that leaves us with two other options. Either his dad is about to die. And a lot of commentators think that his dad was about to die somewhere in the near future. And he wanted to finish that season of life with his dad and then be a follower of Christ. But I actually think it was the second one. I think it's the second one. I think it's the middle one. Uh, and, and that's not as popular of an opinion, but I think it was a, a second Jewish burial that was tradition where you would bury the bones of someone whose flesh had rotted off in an ossuary. And if you go to Jerusalem ever and you go to the, the, the Mount of Olives, you look out and there's thousands of these stone tombs. And all of these stone tombs are family tombs, meaning that multiple bodies are in each tomb. And they're little because you can fit bones in a smaller space than you can fit bodies. And so you still take the bones and you put them in these ossuaries. And so I think because of the language, dead bury the dead, bones upon bones, I think that it's the second option. And what I think Jesus is saying, either way, whether it's the second option or the third option, I think either way, Jesus is saying, no, no. I have authority over your, your relationships and the time that you spend with people in your life. And it is better for you to come and follow me than it is for you to stay in the place where there are dead people. In fact, I would say that Jesus is the life giver and bringer. And for this man to hang back around death was symbolic of him staying in death. For us to remain in our setting until it's convenient to follow Jesus is to remain in death. And Jesus isn't telling that man not to love his family because the Bible is full of love your family. It's one of the top 10. It's in the 10 commandments. It's in Ephesians. It's the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. It is good and right to love people. It is not good to love people to the extent that you think they can fulfill you. And I think that's probably where this man was. And Jesus was trying to free him from that trap. You know, I do think that it's, it's sig significant here. The first guy wanted comfort in following Jesus. And this guy wanted comfort before following Jesus. Comfort is so interesting. And the more money you make and the more status you have, the more opportunity you have for comfort. The Bible doesn't use that word very much, but it does use the language of the world. And it couples that language with idols. In fact, John in 1 John ends his book by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. There's a guy, Bishop John Ryle, and he says, it is not open sin or unbelief which robs Christ of his professing servant, so much as the love of the world, the fear of the world, the cares of the world, the business of the world, the desire to keep in touch with the world. This is the great rock. Listen to this. This is the great rock on which thousands of young people 
are constantly making shipwreck. They do not object to any article of the Christian faith. They do not deliberately choose evil and openly rebel against God. They hope somehow to get to heaven at last and they think it proper to have some religion. But they cannot give up their idol. They must have the world. And so after running well and bidding fair for heaven while boys and girls, they turn aside when they become men and women and go down the broad way which leads to destruction. They begin with Abraham and Moses and end with Demas and Lot's wife. Two little lines said with the utmost love to two people that Jesus wanted to lovingly exert his heavenly authority over. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nest. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. No, follow me. Leave. Leave the dead people to bury their own dead. But there's one little thing that he also says of himself in here that's super important. Do you see what he calls himself? Look, look at verse 20. He calls himself the son of man. A term he uses to identify himself more than any other term. He calls himself the son of man so many times. In fact, it's used 88 times in the New Testament. This is very, very important that he would call himself the son of man. It's a quote from, from the book of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And we're going um, to look at that in just a second. But the son of man is this idea that Jesus was born in heaven, and I'm using human language to describe this, not literally, he's always existed, but it's this picture that he was raised and reared in heaven. So he fully identifies with God the Father. And yet he's the son of man. So he steps down to earth and wraps himself in flesh and fully identifies with us. And in stepping out of heaven, he doesn't do what we do and compromise and live in ways that are uh, against God Almighty. But in stepping out of heaven, he brings heaven to earth. And every human, every heart, everything of nature, every demonic thing, everything he touches, he is lining it up with how it was supposed to be. He can't touch something and not bring heaven to it. And in his words, he is trying to reach out and touch these two men, the scribe and the Pharisee. And he is trying to realign their lives so that their lives will be good and right and match what God had always planned in heaven here on earth. And so... It's with great tenderness that Jesus exerts this title. It shows his incredible authority. There's a great quote about this son of man title, and it says, Ezekiel may have been a son of man, 
but Jesus is the Son of Man. As such, Jesus is the supreme example of all that God intended mankind to be, the embodiment of truth and grace. In him, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And for this reason, the Son of Man was able to forgive sins. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man came to save lives, raise from the dead, and execute judgment. At his trial before the high priest, listen to this, at his trial before the high priest, Jesus said, I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And this statement immediately ended the trial as the court accused the Lord of blasphemy and condemned him to death. Jesus is often sold as the healer, the fix your problems guy. And that's how the the disciple and others at Capernaum viewed him. Um, Or he's the the live your best life guy. And that's kind of how the scribe viewed him. In some ways, yes, he, he heals. And in some ways he does, yes, give you the best life, but usually not in the ways we think. In some ways, he's like not either of these. But he is God, and he is good. And he brings heaven to earth. And so when he demands that we come to him on his terms, which is not a scoop of collagen added to our daily routine, but instead he becomes the day. And I leave everything behind to follow him. Who are we to argue with him? He's the son of man. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when Jesus says, don't put off any longer, Let the dead bury their own dead. Come and follow me. If that resonates with you and you've been putting him off, realize who you're putting off. The gentle yet powerful son of man. And if the thought of following Jesus is to your benefit and his, be warned, we bring nothing to the table. But we are invited to the table. And that's everything. Pray with me. Father, I ask that you would just stir our hearts to a great affection, that we would marvel at this man who in a couple of short sentences can say more than most of us can say in a lifetime. And I thank you for his authority and his power. I thank you for the love of Jesus that he, he exerts so much authority over so many things, but it seems like for us, he's not nearly as forceful and he extends invitations. Lord, may our hearts be softened and may we say yes to his invitation of reckless abandon, of lordship salvation because, well, who else would we follow? It's in Jesus' name I pray, Father.